everyone, I'm Dr. Bo Houston, and you're listening to Recruit It, the voice of the Bridges Lane Center. We support recruits and their families define a sports-to-purpose pipeline. Join me to discuss the pre-COVID college recruiting experiences of young Black women student-athletes to provide a post-COVID response. If you are interested in performance, leadership, advocacy, celebration, and education for young Black women student-athletes and their teammates and the communities that serve them, welcome and settle in. I feel shaken. I... I don't even know how to think. I can't sleep at night because of this. The voice you just heard belongs to a cheerleader named Kristen Evans, a young Black woman from Houston, Texas. Kristen was recruited to be a cheerleader at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, Texas. I was looking forward to making friends and having a good time on the cheer team, but... Since this has happened, it's made it really, really, really hard. Cyan Rhodes of Houston's KPRC2 explains the reason for her sleepless nights. The 17-year-old freshman now struggling after becoming the victim of what her attorney believes was a racist setup orchestrated by her three white roommates. On September 14, 2020, a resident advisor called campus police after a group of students who included Kristen's three white roommates, said Evans had threatened to stab them with scissors. The situation escalated, leading Kristen's parents to file a formal grievance and hire a lawyer, Randy Kellerman. Here's how attorney Kellerman described the events of that night. Their daughter was sleeping and awoken at three o'clock in the morning by local police with flashlights shining at her. Kellerman also said that police had reviewed the dorm surveillance videos and informed Kristen's parents that there was no evidence behind the initial accusation. Well, that's an extremely serious crime. Evans' family members said they are frustrated that the investigation is still ongoing and have called for their university to take action against the students who made the false report, which they believe was racially motivated. It has made me really paranoid. I'm always checking my room and making sure everything is okay before I go to sleep. So I'm just, like I said, I'm taking it one day at a time. This is one specific and current incident of sleeping while Black. In one sentence, Attorney Kellerman allows us to step back and consider Kristen's experience in a larger discussion on the invisibility of Black women. This could have been a Breonna Taylor circumstance. Just like Breonna Taylor and so many other Black women before her, Kristen Evans was asleep in her bed and woken up into this traumatic experience. An alarm ignited because of her race. Taylor's death led to a wide-scale demonstration in the spring and summer of 2020 as the case drew more attention. Some of the loudest calls for justice came from the world of sports. Here's LaShia Clarendon of the WNBA's New York Liberty at a recent game. We are also dedicating this season to Say Her Name campaign, a campaign committed to saying the names and fighting for justice for Black women. Black women who are so often forgotten in this fight for justice, who do not have people marching in the streets for them. We will say her name. 
Sandra Bland, Atiana Jefferson, Dominique Remy Fells, and Brianna Taylor. We will be a voice for the voiceless. Today, we say Brianna Taylor's name and others to raise awareness for black female victims of police brutality and anti-black violence in the United States. But the Say Her Name campaign did not spring up from nothing in the wake of Brianna Taylor's death. It was launched in December of 2014 by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw to bring awareness to the often invisible names and stories of black women and girls who have been victimized by racist police violence and provide support to their families. Here's Dr. Crenshaw during her 2016 TED Talk on the urgency of intersectionality. These women's names have slipped through our consciousness because there are no frames for us to see them, no frames for us to remember them, no frames for us to hold them. We have to be willing to bear witness to the often painful realities that we would just rather not confront. The everyday violence and humiliation that many Black women have had to face. Understanding all this attention and activism in athletic spaces wouldn't have been possible without decades of hard work from people like Dr. Akila Carter-Francique. She's the executive director of the Institute for the Study of Sport, Society, and Social Change at San Jose State University. She also leads as an associate professor in the African-American Studies Department there and is recognized as the leading scholar on the experiences and conditions of Black women athletes, previously serving as the president of the North American Society for the Sociology of Sport. I kind of chose to start with me. (laughs) Um, And really unpacking my experience as an African-American female athlete that had attended a historically white institution of higher education, (laughs) which, you know, was ultimately sort of negotiating these identities and these spaces because I would come to learn and not come to learn, but really sort of embrace the multiple sides of myself. I don't think I saw sport as an avenue that I was going to necessarily sort of be in my whole life, just in that I started at the age of five. As far as getting into formalized sport participation, I had an older brother uh, that ran. He's five years older than me. He was competing and I was at the meets running around, apparently. Let's just put her in something, see how she does and with no real expectation So that was my sort of initial entry into it. But a big part of that influence into my competition was the fact that I'm asthmatic. Mm -hmm. And so with my parents speaking, you know, with my my doctors, they were saying that I needed to be involved in some sort of cardiovascular activity to begin to learn how to control, you know, the effects of asthma. So whether it be swimming, whether it be running, and, you know, we landed on on running in that sense. So asthma was really one of the things that this sort of got me into athletic participation. And then, you know, I kind of wanted to be close to my big brother. So <laughs> it was just a, an opportunity to kind of hang on him, be close to him as well. But I think at, at the same time, you know, definitely being guided by my parents, Parents are K-12 educators. They understood the role of education in our family, and they understood very clearly the role that sport could play in moving through Mm -hmm. your educational pathway. So not only in, you know, middle school and high school, 
but the opportunity to get a college scholarship and thus, you know, participate at that level, but have school paid for. I think they were very strategic in providing pathways for me to compete not only at the high school level, but I would say correspondingly with it in youth competition. So I participated in, you know, the AAUs and Junior Olympics that eventually rolled into USA track and field (laughs) and uh, was able to be at some of those big competitions to get the experience, get the exposure and eventually be seen by coaches, you know, across the country. What was that like in your household every day with these two educators, lifelong educators, and how they help mold you along in that process. My parents were recruited to come to Topeka, Kansas, and they lived in Kansas City, Missouri at the time, but they were recruited from Lincoln University, HBCU, um, to come to Topeka to help continue the fulfillment of Brown v. Borg. Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka was a landmark 1954 Supreme Court case in which the justices ruled unanimously that racial segregation of children in public schools was unconstitutional. It was one of the cornerstones of the civil rights movement and helped establish the precedent that separate but equal education and other services were not, in fact, equal at all. So that was, again, uh, a big part of my upbringing and um, how I understood education. And within that, it was not only going, you know, to school, but also being a part of social organizations, education organizations, and sport organizations that had an educative force, you know, an educative force uh, focus in that sense. I was a, a part of Jack and Jill. I was a part of, again, my youth track club, but the individuals even, you know, leading those organizations and providing curriculum, providing our progressive development, we're educators as well. Mm -hmm. And so everything we did was about learning, was about not only learning, but exposure, exposure to things that were different, learning our history, going on field trips, sitting in plays, going to museums, going to colleges. And it's just an opportunity to really sort of learn from each one of those spaces and places about the possibility of what you can do. My coach, Gerald Christensen, amazing man, he's he's since passed away, but was a physical educator. Mm -hmm. And even when we went on those trips, you know, to the different competitions, if there was a university nearby, we went to it. We toured the campus. If there was a museum nearby, we visited that. Um, But I think he was also a very... I don't know if we would call it innovative, but I think very conscious coach Mm -hmm. in the sense that he knew that he had parents that were educators. And so he allowed them to come in and help with that curriculum and development to ensure that our uh, athletes, you know, people like myself, not only had the opportunity to participate and learn from one another, because it was a very diverse track club 
various races, socioeconomic status. We attended several, you know, different schools in the in the city of Topeka, as well as ability. You know, we had some um, individuals on our team with intellectual challenges. And so it was one where we learned from one another. We engaged with one another, but it taught us sort of to really embrace all people in those spaces. I love that about uh, youth sport and mm-hmm. the the bringing together of a city, people from all outskirts of that city coming to meet and compete together. And, you know, I think that's really, for me, one of the first places where you learn allyship and, yeah. you know, how to go to bat for someone else and cheer someone on and and also learn how to fail and come up short sometimes and right. and and be supported and consoled in those spaces. So mm-hmm. how did you end up at the University of Houston from Topeka, Kansas? <laughs> yeah, Midwest child. Uh, <laughs> you know, especially when we think of track and field, we don't think Kansas. Um, <laughs> but again, just having the opportunity to participate at that level and travel. So one of the things is that I was competing, but I moved. So mid-year of my junior year in high school, I moved from Topeka to Rockford, Illinois. Again, my parents are in K-12 education. They got recruited by my godparents, my godfather, who was a superintendent of schools in Topeka and then became the superintendent of schools Mm -hmm. in Rockford, Illinois. So our families moved together to Rockford. So I finished out my high school days at Rockford Guilford High School. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time, again, doing well athletically, particularly on the club level to get some attention, doing well academically as well. So my dad and I, even for a period, just just traveled to still, you know, participate with my Thunderbolt, my, my Topeka team, club team at competitions around the country, you know, during those summer months. So we were having road trips. I was learning how to drive. It was a great experience <laughs> with my dad. And, you know, I think in that transition, it was challenging. Track kept me together. I did compete for my high school and then on through uh, my senior year. But midway through, we had an indoor track and field season. Midway through, I uh, suffered an injury. And so, you know, that was was very challenging because I was heavily recruited and had already gone on recruiting trips to include University of Houston. And I dislocated my knee long jumping. And with that tore ACL, PCL, LCL, MCL, had a drop foot. It was pretty devastating to say the least because it it happened two weeks before signing date. So the phone stopped ringing. Wow. The calls stopped coming. And that was sort of challenging to really sort of endure that. Now, at the same time, I will say I didn't know the severity of my injury. I didn't get my my athletic scholarship, but I had an academic scholarship to University of Houston. And so that's what my dad was like, school always, you know, so we we had that. So I went on to University of Houston um, on my, my academic, was welcomed into the team. So I definitely have to commend, you know, Coach Tom Telez at the time and saying, hey, still come and we'll see what you can do from there. So that made me feel still, you know, a part of the team. And uh, then again, I'm in an environment where they're not giving up on you um, just because you suffered an injury. So I have to give, you know, again, thanks to Coach Telez on that. But that was where, you know, once I got to the university, 
uh, you know, welcomed in by the, the athletic training facilities. <laughs> that was that was that was sort of orientation. But I I had you know the great opportunity to go to orientation. You know, learn about the school. My mom went with me, but made sure that I not only learned about things that were going on in athletics, but I learned about things that were going on in the greater university. Right. And so you know that was a part of my pathway. I had, I think, a, a story that is similar to others in that recruitment process. And, sure. You know, looking at a number of schools and, and started getting recruited, you know, as my fr- as a freshman in high school. The first year was was a bit challenging. Sure. Um, had uh, two knee surgeries, learned how to walk again, learned how to run again. So it was definitely a journey. But within that, I will say, within that first year, in many ways, it was the best thing that happened to me. Because I was able to, yes, be in the training room, but also be out on the track and watch and learn and see how coach worked with the other athletes, see how the athletes, you know, interacted with coach and learn some of that, which I think is very important, the the importance of sort of that coach-athlete relationship. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition, I had the opportunity to just engage with the campus as a student. And I think that was an important factor for me to learn more about who I was that initial year in all facets of myself, you know, go to plays and experience the city of Houston and sort of be in those spaces with with non-athletes, with just people in the city. And so for me, it was very helpful once I was able to get back on the track, right, and compete that I knew that there were other spaces and places for Mm -hmm. me to go and experience, you know, life differently. I love that. I appreciate, one, the understanding that you don't have to only have an athletic scholarship to attend college. There are other means of, of piecing together financial resources to help you to do that. And so it's funny to hear a very familiar message from your dad about the importance of academics and the role of academics and how we're still going to do this thing. To be able to experience campus is a thing that I think maybe goes unnoticed until the end. If you are, you know, engulfed in your athletic experience, you're tied in and you and your time is um is being taken up because of your responsibilities and commitment that way. I think um you get to the end sometimes and realize that there was so much going on on campus that maybe you could have grown from. Yeah, I think the the socialization part was big. I I have to commend my mom and my other mothers for that. Again, it goes back to sort of those youth engagements I had. Right. You know, being with Jack and Jill, being with my my track club, being involved in, oh my gosh, was it Melody Brown and Kaleidoscope? (laughs) (laughs) You're taking me back to some of the, you know, dramatic interpretation, the arts and those types of enrichment activities that I truly enjoy growing up, but being in the city of Houston as well and being on the campus of University of Houston, there were performances that were going on. There were plays that were going on. There were concerts. There were, you know, city celebrations, ethnic celebrations. Mm -hmm. And so it was a great space to be in to just indulge in that. And my mom was a big proponent of, yeah, go to the play, check it out. (laughs) Um, Or or they would, when my parents would come to town, we would actually go to events and activities together. And so that really kept me grounded 
and in understanding the fullness of myself through my progression as an athlete. It also, and I would say being in the training room again, <laughs> also helped me understand sort of the the fullness of, of who we are as athletes. Yes, you can compete and we do compete at a high level. But in order to sort of maintain, you know, we, we, we go through these these ups and downs. There's ebbs and flows in, in competition from sure. meet to meet, game to game, swim to swim, if you will. But I had the opportunity to be in spaces and go, you know, watch the swimmers perform, go see the baseball team, go to the football games, go to the basketball games. Shoot, I, I worked with one of the coaches there, you know, that really helped sort of bring me along in my advocacy, I would say, for other athletes, but really just being able to sort of experience even sort of a management side right. of sport and know what coaches and things do. So that was very valuable to me. I mean, I served as team captain for two years while I was at University of Houston. I was a peer mentor with our athletic department. I was on the student athletic advisory board as well. So I had the opportunity to be involved in my sport in different ways. So not only being an, an athlete and a participant, but also sort of being in these leadership roles or pseudo leadership roles, being able to speak up and speak out. I remember we were in a student athletic advisory board meeting and we're just kind of talking about the, the media and our university newspaper, I think it was called the Daily Cougar and how they were covering all of the male sports. But, you know, we in the women's sport teams were doing very well athletically and we weren't getting the coverage. <laughs> right. And so we kind of brought that to the, the board and said, hey, can, who can talk with the, the newspaper, right. the media on this, you know, and get us a story because she's doing well and she's doing well. And the women's basketball team is doing well. Our volleyball team is outstanding. Our gymnasts are amazing. We need to do that. And so I think that kind of, for me, continued, I would say, sort of my understanding and desire for advocacy in those spaces. And so having an opportunity to participate in those other aspects of athletics and have a speaking role, I guess, if you will, right. um, in many ways provided me, I guess, continue to ground, continue to develop who I was. And then that information, I think, uh, even upon graduation, coming over into uh, eventually graduating with my degree in kinesis exercise science as well as psychology as I was a double major mm -hmm. allowed me an opportunity to you know eventually roll into my master's degree at University of Georgia pursuing that degree in exercise science and then eventually into my doctorate at University of Georgia under the direction of Dr. Billy Hawkins and where I would sort of begin to understand who I was. Dr. Hawkins had me do massive reading yeah. um, of, of several books. I kept looking and looking on, you know, Blacks and sports. And I was like, um, I don't see the women. Where are the women? Exactly. I'm like, I know we were there because, you know, I looked up to, <laughs> to to Wilma Rudolph and, you know, I heard about Wilma and, and Althea Gibson. I looked up to Jackie Joyner, Kersey and Flo jo and and, um, you know, all of these Valerie Briscoe hooks, you know, amazing women such as Evelyn Ashford. Where are they in the books? It's not documented. And so I asked him, I said, can I can I do my dissertation on women? 
And he said, I was waiting for you to get there. Wow. <laughs> So, you know, in, a, in many ways, he, he has he's guided me and directed me to walk more in my purpose. My work, in many ways, sort of reflects me, my experience, and sort of how I see the world. But at the same time, to utilize those lived experiences and those relationships to speak on it so others also understand, you know, what some of the challenges are, what some of those experiences are, and why we do what we do and why we, why we march today. As I was a student, and I consider myself always a student first because of who my parents are, mm-hmm. as I am an athlete, but I also love art. I love music. I'm really into, you know, hearing about social justice initiative. I'm really appreciative of going to hear speakers that have made a way, you know, for all people in this country, um, in this world. But at the same time, I think I also wanted to unpack the understanding that all of us did not, when, we, when I say all of us, we as Black athletes, I think there's that, that common sort of stereotype that you left, you came from an impoverished space. I mean, that's the narrative, sort right. of the master narrative. Right, you came right. from a, a, a broken home, a single parent. You didn't have the best education. This And, and my whole thing was to... Yes, tell those stories, but tell the fullness of this. We are not a monolithic group. Sure. Um, we come from various spaces and places, but I had interactions with professors and academic advisors that placed that stereotype on me. And that was extremely frustrating for me. That was extremely challenging. And so within that, I think even through that, especially as I look back, I went through my own sort of roller coaster of emotions of anxiety, of depression, of self-doubt, of imposter syndrome in those spaces, but still yet understanding. I'm like, but, you know, I came from, you know, was birthed from these educators and these powerful people that spoke into me and empowered me every day, you know, encouraged me every day so I can see, you know, how we have athletes and individuals that may not have had some of that nurturance fall deeper into spaces. And so through that, I I really want to just kind of tell that story of what it means to be Black, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be an athlete in these various spaces and how we are perceived positively and negatively and how that ultimately sort of impacts our journey. And I think that in in working with with Dr. Hawkins and his, you know, pioneering work with Mm -hmm. regards to the colonization of the Black athlete and this notion of the migrant laborer really was a a good extension to his work. I think it complemented what he did. Because I'm like, yeah, I I see myself in part of that, but let me tell the female aspect of it as well. Because we, we have a journey that is almost to the point of, you know, as Black male athletes, they're pushed to the fore and we see them living and developing in front of us. And at the same time as Black women, we're there with those men, helping them in many ways as as brothers and sisters going through this journey. Mm -hmm. But our story, we're living in silence in many ways. We're invisible in many ways and we're suffering and experiencing challenges that are not being seen and addressed. But at the same time, we're also still thriving. So we both highlighted the power of storytelling and narrative in our initial works where I landed on poetry and you highlighted the power of music. I'm interested in your choice to use music as a means of identifying 
specific elements of your work? I see myself through music, lyrics from Mary J. Blige and Erica Badu and Jill Scott. But those lyrics are not just lyrics. They are sort of a, a thesis and a, a message of lived experience from Black women. And I'm taking the time to just make sure I have quiet moments mm -hmm. to sort of check in with myself. What is the song that's capturing the essence of Dr. Carter Francis <laughs> in this in this very, very complicated and complex moment right now? Oh, my gosh. There, there's really so many because <laughs> of the way my day goes, you know, the way my week goes. I'm, I'm not only doing work and working from a home environment because we're still shelter in place here mm -hmm. in California. I also have my children <laughs> that are, are with me and they are um, in school virtually. Right. My husband, my partner is currently here in the country for a little bit um, as he's in school as well right. um, overseas. One of them that's, that's really hit me is, is from Kendrick Lamar. It's called Feel. Mm. And it's this notion that Ain't nobody praying for me. You like nobody knows what what we're going through in this, and it, for me, it just kind of, you know, after moving out here because I'm going into year two at San Jose State, and it is, I've experienced uh, cougars running around, uh, <laughs> some new stuff. Huh? I've experienced my uh, earthquake uh, oh, here. Yeah. Then COVID came. We had you know the racial unrest that's taking place. And so I was, you know, had lived in Georgia for a while and then, you know, come back to California as my parents are just as amazing as they are. Help me with my, my children and myself, right. you know, in those times, getting back to California in addition to COVID and living in this Black Lives Matter movement time. Then we have wildfires here and right. rolling blackouts. And <laughs> right. so it's um, I, I am appreciative of musicians and artists that can help me navigate my feelings and just allow me to sort of have those feelings. And I think that's really what's important as we are living in this space and time right now is to allow yourself to feel. There's so many emotions that go on, so many triggers and reminders of the things that we take for granted sometimes, and also the opportunities we have to create change. I also wanted to express to you that before having the opportunity to actually see you speak in Virginia Beach, there was this unsettling in my spirit because I think that I was afraid to be out front and afraid mm -hmm. to maybe it was just uncertainty about is my voice going to be big enough to describe this message and when i saw you speak and you had a slide it may have been you know maybe even the first slide and you described yourself as an educator and an activist i believe mm -hmm. that was the word that was up there um i apologize if if i miss misciting that yeah but scholar educator activist yeah it, it was so powerful I don't know if she's asking for permission. I think she just told the room. <laughs> I think she just let us know what it was. And it was the first time that I've seen someone make that proclamation and say, this is what I'm doing. This is where this is where we're going and how we're moving forward. And I won't forget that you and uh, Dr. Hamilton 
we didn't talk very much, but you guys took a second of your time just to make sure that I was okay. And it meant a lot because I wasn't okay. I believe that your voice and the 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 programs and the things that you cultivate are going to be so crucial. What is your vision for the Institute moving forward? Well, first I want to say thank you. That was a full circle moment. So it was, I think, exactly 10 years wow. um, since I had gone there as a student and then had then taken the stage as president. So it was a very emotional experience for me sure. as, uh, to, to be, um, you know, in that space and um, to give that, what I'm gonna say is testimony mm-hmm. um, because so much had happened in there. The living the silence, living the invisibility and also hearing the stories of those that have been silenced, that have been invisible and not only me, but my colleagues that are of color. And I just wanted to put it out there mm-hmm. and say, you know, we are here and it's it's time to get on board because we've got a story that must be told, must be shared because we're representing society. We're representing all those voices. The Institute was started in 2017, brainchild of Dr. Harry Edwards. And if you're don't know who he is, check him out um, with regards to being an architect for the Olympic Committee for Human Rights, which eventually created the Olympic Project for Human Rights and was a strong influence in the protest of Tommy Smith and John Carlos and many other athletes at the 1968 Games in Mexico City. So with in my role as executive director, my goal is to continue the legacy, continue the work that he's done, and to do it in ways also that are very educative. Because what I'm seeing and what I'm, I guess, incurring from my interactions with folks is just to make sure that the, the story is sustained. So uh, in, in many ways, working from the guise of Gloria Ladson billing this notion of culturally relevant knowledge, but moving forward to this place also of culturally sustaining knowledge. Mm-hmm. In other words, that we, we know the history and we know it accurately. And at the same time, we're adding other pieces to the history and legacy of sport and social justice in this society. Yes, Tommy and John are those that we remember, but we have to remember that there were those before them. When we think of a major Taylor as a cyclist, when I think of a Lucy Diggs Slow, an Aura Washington as tennis players, you know, pioneering black women. When we think of a Wilma Rudolph, when we think of an Althea Gibson, those are oftentimes the names we know, right. but we don't know a Louise Stokes, a Theodora Tidy Pickett. You know, we don't know those individuals. And so, um, and even with that, we don't know the fullness of some of the, the pioneering activists to include, you know, a Jackie Joyner Kersey, a C. Vivian Stringer, a Tina Sloan Green and what she's done with the Black Women's Sport Foundation, a right. Nikki Frank, to know that these women, we don't know these stories. And so wanting to put those out there to give some context and understanding, um, as Ella Baker would say, to not just know, but to understand those lived experiences so that we today, our young people today, that are wanting to walk in those footsteps, right? Understand the significance of walking in those footsteps and not just, you know, what we hear the cheers later for um, and the revere for Tommy and John, 
and the cheer for Muhammad Ali, right? Mm -hmm. But to also know that they went through real struggles and challenges, you know, mental health, not having a job, being able to take care of your family. The humanity oftentimes gets lost in these stories. And so the goal of the Institute is to share those stories, to also share the stories of those that were allies, like Peter Norman, right. you know, that stood in solidarity. And so the Institute is here, again, continue the legacy and continue the legacy through education, through acknowledgement, through understanding. And so we have educative programs. We have programs that sort of speak to stories that, again, aren't necessarily mainstream. So I'm going to talk about, yes, race, but we're also going to talk about disability. Right. It oftentimes does not get, get discussed. We're going to talk about some of those things. We're going to share the, the stories of student athletes currently mm-hmm. and what they're going through and how they are moving on through the research and engagements that we have, not only, you know, working with the work that I do, but we have some great faculty and faculty affiliates that are doing great things in their own spaces and opening doors for collaboration. Because when we look at issues as it relates to social change and social justice, protesting and demonstrating is but one way that you can do that. And really helping to explain this uh, is a complex issue. It took many years, decades, and centuries (laughs) Mm -hmm. for it to get to this space. And so we're trying to unpack things. And thus, we need a complex array in multiple ways to be able to start dismantling the injustices that are taking place. So whether it be through education, through legislation, through writing letters, through, um, you know, having social media campaigns to really uh, express that there's multiple ways and things that you can do. Everybody can't be on the front lines. Right. And everybody shouldn't be on the front lines because you have a certain skill set, a certain um, aptitude to sort of add to this to organize, right? Mm-hmm. And to share the voices because you have a platform over here as a legislator. And so, you know, our goal is always to continue the legacy, but also build upon the work of those individuals that have done those great things. I appreciate the offering of a skill set and a different approach to uh, the same problem. I think that especially when we're dealing with, you know, younger individuals who are trying to get their footing and, you know, they they feel something and they have a a, a burning desire to contribute. And so mm-hmm. the offering of, hey, here's a here's a range of ways to contribute and feel like you are um, forcing change, I think is is powerful. Before we go, I have one more question for you. Do you have one or two questions that someone entering in or participating in the recruiting process should ask or have some clarification about before making their decision? I have an array of questions. Um, and to be quite honest, my my father and my track coach, who I mentioned, uh, Gerald Christensen, they put together a whole list for when we went on recruiting trips of nice. questions to ask yes. coaches. So, yes. But I think to to be more maybe succinct and, and, and in some ways simplistic, but not really, but to understand that you are a whole person and athletics is but one part of you. So uh, the questions... It would be a a number of questions, but 
to basically begin to understand from those institutions, what support services do they have in athletics, academic tutors, mentors, should I get injured? What support will I have access to? Health insurance, you know, will I get to keep my, my scholarship? Mm-hmm. So support services in athletics, but also support services university-wide. So again, academic tutors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that are outside the athletic department, mentors, access to the wellness center. Where is the financial aid office? Where is the library? What student groups can I be a part of? That's within general, but also within your academic major. And even within that, um, you know, looking into things that will begin to speak to your own career development, because at some point you will graduate. (laughs) (laughs) And so part of those things that go into your career development are, you know, internship opportunities. And I will even add on this, study abroad. Yes. It is such an important (laughs) aspect. I didn't get an opportunity as a student athlete but have since been traveling amazingly, you know, um, into different spaces and places. But just it also provides um, an opportunity to sort of reflect upon, you know, who you are in this space in the U.S., in your school as an athlete and, and being able to expose you to some of the similarities and differences across the world. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Recruited. Next week, we will be hearing another story that sheds light on what it means to be recruited. Until then, share this episode, join the community, and leave a review. For information found in this episode, contact me directly at bo at bridgeslane.org. Check out the show notes and visit bridgeslane.org backslash recruited. Get recruited wherever you get your podcasts. Want to see photos and profiles of our emerging prospects? Follow us on Instagram at Dr. Bo Houston. And as always, if you have any questions or would like to be featured on our show, send us a note. Until next time, remember, you are worthy to win. Mm-hmm.